So today we are going to be in Romans chapter 9. Last week we uh, touched on this a little bit. Um, We also hit Romans chapter 8 last week. Just for the sake of kind of a reminder for us, we're not going to go back and read through Romans 8. Um, I don't think anybody um, ever in church history has a problem with wanting to read Romans chapter 8. There's so much hope, so many promises. It's such an empowering chapter in Scripture, um, and it's followed up by Romans chapter 9, um, which if you've ever read Romans chapter 9, um, you will realize there's some difficult things to understand in there. Paul says some very difficult things there. Um, I do believe that it's 100% absolutely meant to be... um, a source of encouragement for us. I think that the primary reason that Paul goes into this subject matter at all is to encourage us that the God who makes promises is a God who has been consistently keeping those promises over the course of human history. And 9, 10, and 11 um, is meant to show us that that very fact, that, that God's Word cannot fail um, will not fail. Um, I want to make mention of one thing um, before uh, we get started in this. I have talked through this previously, this entire thing, and I did it better the first time. <laughs> so if you wanted to go and see what it, this should sound like, <laughs> go to the podcast. Um, it's not always easy to find in that Romans, like the to, to find the actual, like, well, where does he talk about what? Um, if you were to go and look, Romans, the part 33 is where this starts, okay? Um, so Romans 33, the, the Romans part 33 of that study, go and you can start there and you'll hear probably a better version than this just because we were, we had literally started from Romans 1 1 and progressed all the way through the end of 8 and then stepped into 9 and that is the best way to approach this chapter because you have the full context of all that Paul's saying kind of flow, flowing into this and kind of just picking up here in, in nine. It, it makes it hard for me as a teacher because like I want to make references back to things that were said in earlier chapters and, and because we haven't started this time there, then I don't expect you to remember things that were said years ago. Right? So um, I would encourage you again, go go listen to the first time that I did it. I did it better there. <laughs> so, so now that the, the bar of expectation has been set low, <laughs> we'll get started on this again. So Last, last week, we, we spent some time looking in Romans chapter 8, um, specifically because as we deal with this idea of election, and, 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 and I don't have to tell you that this can be a contentious subject, that like even like the idea of approaching it, would we be honest, how many of you get nervous whenever, I know Dustin's saying no, no, no. no I love watching you squirm. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Okay, so we've got a couple of preachers in here. How many of you would... How many of you would be would stand up and feel super comfortable with this being a subject in any church in our area? <laughs> I see you hiding <laughs> behind the pulpit. Even if you didn't hit it head on the first time that was in a pulpit, it would be 
was by far the most nerve-wracking sermon I've ever preached. Yeah. And some of the reasons is because you know that depending on how you go through it, you may come out with particular labels assigned to you that you may not even assign to yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I wouldn't mind discussing it here, but I don't know about going out to other churches. Yeah. And you get, yeah, yeah. because it's, because the word itself, the word itself comes along with baggage. Um, and much of that baggage is lack of understanding more than it is understanding, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it ought not. Here's a, here, my 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 belief is that this is not a church dividing subject matter. Even if you fall on one side or the other, right? What happens is is I think pride is the thing that causes it to kind of pull in between. Uh, I think if we come with the common ground that we kind of are all generally based, no matter which side you come. You faith in Christ alone, and in, in through the preaching of the word alone, and your faith in that by being drawn by the Holy Spirit, like everybody's there. But as we start walking through ideas, there starts to be like, well, I, I feel more strongly about this thing, or I feel more strongly about this thing, and and attention comes up. Um, this is why whenever I approach it, we're going. What what is one subject in in the systematic theology book is going to turn into like y'all know how long it took us to get through Romans, <laughs> okay? Um, Nine, ten, and eleven. We're we're essentially covering chapters. We read last part of chapter eight, or actually the whole thing, um, and then nine, ten, and eleven. We're going to spend time digging into because when you approach this subject in particular, it is such a rich subject such i would almost say like in some regards a mysterious one that in my opinion the only way to approach it rightly is to find a place in the scripture where it's used to understand why it's being brought in at that time and then to use that to press in through what the scripture says and leave aside all of the Ideas that are not in that particular text that you're that you're digging into, right? So that's kind of what we're going to be doing as we as we press in here. Um, last week I started by reading the opening, or uh, we kind of concluded with reading the opening of chapter nine, um, verses one through six. So I want us to do that again today, um, so that we can kind of draw some conclusions about what we're not saying or what ought not be um, on our minds about what this text is saying as we look at uh, Paul's heart as he um, kind of pivots into this into this subject here. So uh, Romans chapter 9 verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So I mentioned this last week. We should, whenever we approach this, and any time that you um, see within Scripture the, the, this concept of election, the ideas of predestination being put forward, you should ask in your mind, why is it being put forward in this particular text? What is it that God is trying to show to us by bringing this difficult to understand thing out and start exploring it, right? So the purpose behind Paul bringing it out here is, is that chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Romans, Paul has been laying out the gospel. There is no clearer laying out of the gospel in all of scripture than you find in Romans chapter 1 through 8. Paul concludes in 8, so Paul is laying the gospel out. The need for in the early chapters of Romans that all are under sin, right? And then from there that, that we are justified in Christ. And from our justification we find also that through the working of the Holy Spirit we are, we are sanctified in the same work, by the same power. And then Romans 8, the pivot begins into the glory that we have to hope for and God restoring creation, and God bringing us to that full, complete hope of our resurrection bodies, that this is what we hope for, right? That He will not fail in this. There's a, there's a, a great possibility that every one of us go to our graves in faith that we will come back from our graves. Now, there's also the possibility that Christ returns in in our lifetime, right? Um, but that was the there was people who have come before us who have hoped for that same hope that we are not the ones to experience death. If you know, like um, they find themselves in the graves, there's a great likelihood that we will also find ourselves uh, one day facing death with the hope that uh, this is not the end for us. That Christ will return, and from the dead we will rise as heroes. And we will have new resurrection bodies. And this is a hope that we as believers today will, will lay our, our last breath will be breathed in this hope, right? Now, the problem that Paul sees as he's laying this gospel message out that he is addressing here is for those who would look and say, Paul, man, you're a Jew and none of your people really believe this. Right? Like, you're a Jew. He was the king of the Jews. Why is it if God is keeping all of his promises throughout human history to the people that he's made these promises to, why is it then that his own people would seem to be missing out on this? And to answer that question, right? To do justice to that question, he then brings to the forefront, something that he's been kind of 
laying the groundwork throughout the book of Romans up to this point, but now, now it's time to bring it out so that he can make sense of what he's seen. And I imagine for him, he spent quite a bit of time wrestling with this same question. That's why he opens up the book like this. One thing that I want us to kind of think about um, is, is, that, is this, we oftentimes treat this subject on one side or the other as though like there should be no tension there should be no like pull within us that that this side has it or this side has it what i want us to understand is that paul is the one who's putting forward these realities and he opens up this chapter speaking about his unceasing anguish this is not the truth that he's going to bring to bear in the chapters that follow are these are not truths that his spirit has necessarily come to grips with, right? So I don't want us to think as we press into these and we understand and we dig into these things and we try to understand these things that there's not going to be a tension within us for the realities of what we find in this chapter, right? That that we would be prideful beyond measure to think that um, when we get an understanding that there's not going to be some tension within our hearts to find that the person who's laid this out in scripture in the longest run that you'll find this subject covered in all of scripture opens it up speaking about how he has a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart right so like that's something that i want us to kind of think about here is that this subject um, though it will bring us as believers great comfort um, in it as well as a tension that is an undeniable tension um, that is, an, I think, for us a natural tension um, and in some regards um, ought to push us not to look away from it but, but a source of both hope as well as like, Lord, I need, I need you to help me here, Right? Like, like it, it is not a bad thing that as we begin to understand these ideas more and more that we have an anguish within us, right? I would say that it would be wrong for you not to have an anguish for the lost. That if you find yourselves looking at this subject matter and you, and, and depending on which side you fall on, there can be a tendency for you to become in some ways calloused towards, or you can look across the aisle, if you will, and look to the other side and say, well, the way that you think about this ought, like, that makes you callous towards the lost, right? And again, that would be another one of those, I think, straw man that can be, that can be set up against the opposing view that, that, the view that might oppose you in this regard. And, I, I think that that would be an unfair thing to do. Uh, I think any believer who approaches this subject um, honestly, uh, there there is likely within them a, a tension over this. And, and I think the text, um, it's clear within the text that that is a natural thing for us as we as we approach these realities. You ought to have a great unceasing anguish um, for the lost. Um, but this, these ideas that we find here, um, 
in, in some ways, this is an in-house debate because this is, this is a fight for our hope, right? As a believer, if you are a believer, if you have placed your faith in Christ and, and you look at your life and you see the work of the Holy Spirit in you and you know without a doubt where your heart lies, this text is not meant to scare you away, but this text is meant to solidify you and ground you in hope, right? And I, and I pray that as we go through this, um, that that's what it does, right? Um, I, I, I pray that it solidifies us um, in the truth that we find here in verse 6 of chapter 9, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, right? So the question would be, has he not failed his people, right? Has he not failed his people? And in describing this and bringing forward this idea of God's providence, God's election throughout history, um, he's working tirelessly through this entire run to point us back to the reality that God's word cannot fail. That when he's made promises, those promises are sure. When you lay your head to rest for the final time on this world, when you find yourself in your, in your most helpless position, which is death, you can rest there knowing that the God who made promises in chapter 8, these great, grand, who shall stand against us promises that you can know for certain that he will keep those promises. That you cannot have a single question in your heart that for That for us as believers, that God spared no expense and that there is nothing in all creation that can stand between you and him. Because he's been working history together for this moment. Like that's, that's the hope that we should find. Not that he could fail, but that he orchestrated everything for this. That that's the kind of control, that's the kind of attention to detail that God has. Right? And I understand that as I say that, there are questions that hang. Right? I understand that as I say that God orchestrated everything together for this, for this moment, to present this hope to us in the work of Christ, that there are questions about the loss that linger there. What If he's in control of everything, then what? Right? Like, I've got those questions. I've got those tensions within me for the people that I know. 
the people that you know, the people that have come before us who have died, the people who have not had the gospel presented to them yet, who live today with no hope like what we have. Those tensions are there, right? Those tensions are there. And it should bring within us this this anguish as we deal with it, but it should not lessen our faith in the one who is working, right? It should not lessen our faith there. And Paul wants this hope to rise up within us, so he begins working through here, um, displaying to us this reality that God's promises have not failed. We need to adjust our understanding of what was taking place, right? Because a particular, a particular view of who the people of God were had risen up within the culture, right? And Paul here begins to try to adjust that understanding. He says, For not all descendants from Israel belong to Israel. That's the last part of chapter 9, verse 6 there. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now I want us to go and I want us to look at this. Um, Genesis chapter 21, if you'll flip with me there. So Genesis chapter 21, we're going to be looking here in verse 12. So Genesis 21 and 12. So this is where this quote, and we're going to, we're going to be kind of jumping back into the Old Testament a couple of different times here. Um, in verse 11, and the, or excuse me, uh, verse 12, and the thing was, but God said to Abraham, be not, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So we see here um, this moment where um, Ishmael, which is not the son of the promise, Okay, so God had promised Abraham a son. Abraham has a son, and his name's Ishmael. But God makes a distinction between the works of man and the works of God. Right? And, he, and he's like, I, and there's tension in this text and what's going on here. As well, right? So, like, Sarah's kind of displaced at what's going on. Um, and she kind of is like, get these people out of here. Like, she, in some regards, she gets them into this situation. And now she's like, you're going to have to make a decision, right? <laughs> and um, Abraham's like, he's a little, little torn in this regard. He loves his, he loves his son here. Um, and then God's, God says, verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not, be not, displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman whatever sarah says to you do as she tells you for through isaac shall your offspring be named and she she we'll, we'll see here in a second where the promise was for isaac not ishmael and god does not ex, god does not say okay well you've got a son now through ishmael i'll just do it there no god had a plan god had promises and man's working in some regards is getting in the way here but what I what I don't want us to think is that in God 
not fulfilling his promise promise here through Ishmael that he somehow has like a hatred for Ishmael or or that like God doesn't love Ishmael um, verse 20 um, of that same chapter and God was with the boy and God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow and he lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother uh, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So like we we get this like picture of him and and this accounting of him that God was that God was with him as he grew up. So it is not as though God like threw him out to the trash, but here's the reality is that God has a plan that he is working out and it's not through our means or our effort but it's through the promises, right? So there's this narrowing down that we find in the Old Testament. I, I, I see it in my mind as this funneling that is occurring, that, that we have all of humanity fallen, and then we have this narrowing down, this, this selection and calling out of a people, right? We get Abraham, and then through his children, and then this, this funnel funneling down ultimately finds its narrowest point at Christ. But this is a funneling down, not for the sake of it's going to just continue funneling, but we find this funneling down with promises for the nations strewn throughout the Old Testament. Right? And Israel gets off track in a lot in a lot of ways instead of being a light to the nations they're just wanting to kind of keep it all in for themselves they start building up for themselves rules so that they can appear righteous in their own eyes all the while God is continuing to work to narrow down to Christ and it is in Christ and through Christ that we see that funnel switching in the other direction where from Christ it explodes out to all the nations. So we have a narrowing down in that ultimately finding its narrowest point in Christ, in the life of Christ. And then from there, this explosion out to the nations, right? So there is a narrowing down in this, in God's work of election. Right, and we and we see Paul laying this out here. I, I want us to be aware that as we're going through chapter nine, glance over at the beginning of chapter ten, right? Like because as we get into the towards the middle and end of chapter nine. We're going to see narrowing, 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 narrowing. And then we're going to see like Paul addressing a couple of difficult questions. And then for one of those questions, he's literally like, who are you to question God? Right? And then what happens on our side is we have particular thoughts that are not necessarily lined up with Scripture about faith and about the work of the gospel. And then chapter 10, he's going to there. That's where we get out. Like, there's so many places of hope for the preached word of God to the nations that are found in 10, right? Beautiful are the feet. 10. Faith comes by hearing. That is hearing the word of Christ. That's chapter 10, right? So that's why we're not just going to go and stop at the end of chapter 9 when we talk about election. We're going to go into 10, and then we're going to go from 10 to 11 because we need to 
see the whole story that Paul is trying to tell as he does this. So yes, he's, he's going to be giving us here um, in, in Romans chapter 9 uh, a, a view that appears to be this narrowing down um, of the work of God. And, and, and this is without a doubt for a purpose. That, that purpose is ultimately to show us that the word of God has not failed um, so verse 7 there, not all the children of Abraham, so we're back in Romans chapter 9, uh, not all the children of Abraham are our children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? Think about Ishmael there. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That was the text that we jumped back there in Genesis chapter 21 for. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So it's so he's pointing towards this promise, right? This is a narrowing down. Not all the children of Abraham, but a narrowing down children of the promise. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said about this time, Next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So let's, let's jump over to Genesis chapter 18. Um, we'll look there and see where this quotation comes from. Notice that, it's, that this quotation is back in the text from where we were. I'm sorry, chapter 18. And we're going to be looking here in... Verse 10, so um, in, in the prior where we're looking at Ishmael and Isaac, that was in Genesis chapter 21. That's where this, this decision is being made here. And then Paul makes a quote um, in the earlier text there in Romans chapter 9 to, to that place in Genesis chapter 21. And then he reminds us of the promise that was made to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to look here in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Sarah, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, I shall indeed have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, God is doing something in human history that if we attempted to do it as humans would be sinful. Because we are imperfect, we are unrighteous, we are unholy, we are in no way deserving of glory. Okay? So for us to seek self-glory is an act of sinfulness and pride. Right? Our greatest achievement in life is the glory of God. Because God alone is worthy of glory. And God alone is worthy of seeking His own glory. 
right? If I seek out my own glory, that is a dangerous path for me as a broken, sinful man. Yet God, being holy and perfect in all regards, it is only right for him to seek his glory and to seek his name being magnified. And so that's what God is doing here. So when we see here, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? One, there's a question that we ought to ask ourselves here. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Like Abraham and Sarah, like as Sarah's laughing here, he's like, can I not do this? Like I can speak everything that you see into existence. I can hold you in existence in this very moment. Yet, old man, I can't give you a child. Is there anything too hard for me? Get your popcorn. Sit back and watch the show. Right? Like, God is working in human history to glorify himself. Ultimately glorifying himself in the work of Christ on a cross. We will see him more clearly because he chose this way other than puppets. We will see him more clearly because he chose this way other than everyone sinless. We will see him more clearly because he is wise. He is good. He is holy. He is merciful. You could not see that. He is righteous and just. He's given himself opportunity to show all that he is to us in the work of creation. Right? And he's doing that, right? And he is good. He is holy. He is righteous. He is merciful. He is angry at sin. He is a God who is justified in showing wrath. All of these things. His plan and His working out have made us as His created beings blessed in being able to see who He is more clearly. Even if you were to happen to be one that rejected it, count yourself blessed that you knew that He existed. This God who creates out of nothing. So he lays this forward. He lays forward this idea. And, and his working out, if you, I mean, this is not hard for us to see. Look throughout the Old Testament, everything that occurred pointing up to Christ. God works, seems to me that he likes to work more in the, in, in the realm of the impossibilities than in the realm of like, that would be easy for me to do. Right? Like, Ishmael would have been in the realm of that would have been easy for me to do. Right? That would be easy for us to do. But God doesn't, God doesn't want to display Himself to us like that. God's working, and in much of it, he's doing, the, he's doing it through what would appear to us to be like the counter means to doing it like i would have probably done it this way or i would have probably done it that way and you would have done it wrong landon i would have done it wrong it would have not have been perfect it would have not have been holy it would not have been what it is 
Yeah. Because I tell you, yeah. Sarah, I mean, her listening at the door and hearing that was like, no. Listen, I'm not, when I, when I, when I'm not surprised that she laughed, okay? <laughs> I'm not surprised that she laughed because it was a laughable thing that was told to her. Sure. It was laughable. I mean, everything that she said was true. Yeah. Everything she said was true. She was too old. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> now you worry. Once you're pregnant, now, oh my goodness, I'm too old to have this child. I was planning on retiring next year. What is this? Well, it's like the promise came through this child, and it was a miraculous pregnancy. And it was such a foreshadowing yeah. of the miraculous in a virgin. Yeah. Even more miraculous. Yeah. Like, very much so, like, all of this. Not the way that we would have done it. Oftentimes, by way of what can only be explained is the miraculous. Or for us, what would be the impossible. Um, God intentionally, all along the way, is doing this. Um, let's go back to Romans chapter Romans chapter 9. Um, we will... Y'all do understand that... Um, I, I've tried to break myself of saying Romans every time that I said any text. <laughs> it's, I feel like I, I feel like I'm going to need to rehab after we get done with this thing because I'm going to be back there saying Romans every time that I touch any <laughs> any text. At least for now, I'm just going to enjoy it because I, I feel like I really can't go wrong. Um, <laughs> So, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, verse, verse 8 here. Um, this means that it is not the children of the flesh or children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. So this is pushing down a generation, showing again this narrowing down of, of the promise and, and who the promise would come through. We find um, Isaac now having children in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And we'll come back to this ne- next week and spend some time here in, in in chapter 9 verse 11 but I want us to read, read this this narrowing down though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of the works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob have or Jacob I loved but Esau I hated okay now Next week, we're going to spend some time here. This is the text that, that's often the most difficult to um, wrangle with when we, when we come to this, uh, this idea. It's, it's really here in verse 13. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Okay. Um, and I would encourage you, 
to go find where that quote happens. Um, Actually, I'll just give it to you. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 is where that particular statement is made. Now, what I want you to kind of have in your minds as you read that is that this is talking about the nations who have who have come from and descended from these these two brothers okay um and and i think that it's really obvious um that that god showed a particular favor towards israel um as opposed to to edom in in this case one because like for all eternity it will not be an edomite that sits on the throne for all eternity it will be a Jew, right? It will be an Israelite that sits on the throne. Like, if you, if you disregarded anything else in all history and just looked at that reality, the favor that God showed to this people, that it would be through this people that the Savior of all mankind would come, then any comparison... If that's what love looks like, any comparison that you can make to Edom would appear like hate to them, right? Because the Savior of the world comes through these people, not the Edomites, not the firstborn, right? Through the one that God had promised. Um, and and we'll, we'll pick up there next week and dig in a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more on that then.